the one thing the craft sector can do now is to change its structure and its system so that people don't have to fight to feel like they belong, fight to get their expertise recognised, fight to make a living when it's so easy for dominant groups. So they just don't have to fight to make their own table. They might actually get invited to a table. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. Over the summer, a research study sponsored by the Craft Council and Birmingham City University on discrimination in the craft sector caught our eye. For this month's episode of the Restart Project podcast, I spoke to its author, Dr. Karen Patel, who is leading Craft Expertise, a project researching inequalities in craft and documenting experiences of makers from marginalised groups in order to aid the creation of solutions to discrimination and inequality within the craft sector. We found that there are many similarities between craft and repair, both in the actual practice and in the barriers to participation and success that many people experience. I'm Dr. Karen Patel. I'm a research fellow at Birmingham City University and I'm currently researching inequalities in the UK professional craft sector. Yeah, it's lovely to hear a, a Birmingham accent. I grew up for a little bit in Coventry and my mum worked in Birmingham, so I'm familiar with the area and the accents and it's nice. Can you tell us about craft expertise and what the aims of the project are? Craft Expertise is a project which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and it's in collaboration with Crafts Council UK. And the aims of the project are to raise awareness of inequalities in craft and highlight the experiences of makers from marginalised groups, in particular ethnically diverse makers who identify as women. And we're also working with the Crafts Council to try and address these issues on a national scale. So during COVID-19, we saw an increase in the popularity of craft. We saw people sewing masks and scrubs at the beginning of the pandemic. More craft shows appearing on TV. And at the same time, there was also an increase in community and co-op enterprises helping people helping the vulnerable who couldn't leave the house and these people and groups pulling together. And I noticed a few projects where craft was also involved in that. So Craft Space in Birmingham did a really great project of distributing food parcels and craft kits to the local community in Birmingham. So I thought that was a really nice development to come out of a a really horrendous time. So this idea of community and caring for each other is is so important in a world where there's so much carelessness. And I see craft as sort of a catalyst for some of this caring work. So in this second phase, I'm still focusing on the sort of inequalities in the sector and following up on the recommendations in the report, but also thinking how we can address some of these issues in alternative ways and exploring ideas of care, 
compassionate work in the creative sector and the role of craft social enterprises in providing those alternative pathways into craft and opening up those opportunities to more people. It also will hopefully involve some research in Australia where there are some similar issues with inequalities in craft but also some really prominent craft and social enterprises. The website is craftexpertise.com and on there is the latest report and that's where all of the Maker Stories podcasts are. So I've interviewed five women working in craft about their various experiences in the sector. Right. I mean, and that's really interesting hearing you talking about craft. I can see the repair movement crosses over. Obviously, like it's not really a binary. Some crafts involve repair and some repair involves crafting, but also kind of similar concerns around care and remaking the world in more positive ways. And also, you know, the repair community had a similar time, I think, during COVID of like not being able to do what they had been doing and meeting up, but suddenly finding that there were important needs that repair could address. And it sounds like craft was in the same boat as that. What is cultural labour or cultural work? For me, they're two slightly different things. So cultural work, I think of as the types of work taking place in the cultural sector. For me, this includes the arts and crafts and any creative occupations which involve making cultural objects or performances and things with sort of creative and symbolic value. In my book, my recent book, The Politics of Expertise in Cultural Labour, Arts Work Inequalities, and that's published by Roman and Littlefield. The definition of cultural labour that I have is the specific act of creation and its experience. And that's what I'm really interested in, that experience on the ground of people doing creative work and what all of that involves. That's really interesting. A lot of the time people just assume that the words labour and work mean the same thing. But as someone who works with words, they always mean something slightly different from each other, even if they seem to be in the same umbrella. So how did you become interested in the professional craft sector? In my PhD, I looked at how artists communicate their expertise on social media and I found that their ability to make a career out of art, have the time to build a successful online presence is tied in with different factors such as finance, education and their personal lives such as caring responsibilities looking after children which disproportionately affected the women that I interviewed. So I ended up looking at gender inequality in the art world and how women use social media particularly to sort of amplify each other and support each other which I found quite interesting. So after the PhD craft really interested me because it's highly skilled so high levels of expertise are required and yet there's this perception that certain types of craft certain types of maker maybe are more valued than others and the visible face of craft on tv shows online was noticeably whiter there's some research out there that does show that anyway so I got in touch with crafts council to see if they wanted to work on this project 
because I, I really wanted to get a sense of the experiences of people working in craft, particularly people from marginalised groups in the sector, mainly women and people from ethnically diverse backgrounds. So the Crafts Council, their industry figures do show that on the face of it, the professional sector has a lot of women working in it. But when you dig down to it, most of those working part-time, precarious positions, they're mostly women. Most of the people who are secure, well-paid, highly renowned, most of them are men. So there's still that huge discrepancy. And at the same time as well, the proportion of makers from ethnically diverse backgrounds was very low. So can you tell us about some of the key findings in your work on craft expertise so far? Yeah, sure. So from the first phase of the project, the report is out there now on the craft expertise website. There are three key findings. So the first is racism and microaggressions in craft spaces. So from the interviews that I did with women from ethnically diverse backgrounds in craft Pretty much all of them had experienced some form of racism or microaggressions in craft spaces. So this includes craft education, studios, fairs mainly, just out and about in the craft sector and coming across different people. The most common were microaggressions. There are one or two incidents of pretty horrendous racism, but it's mostly microaggressions. So these are behaviours, looks and comments which... You can't really pinpoint, you can't really report them, but they can make you feel othered or offended. And uh, this happened a lot. The second finding is to do with how the craft expertise of the makers they felt was devalued or misrecognised. So a lot of them felt that their work was judged unfairly. Some felt that judgments about their work were made through the sort of prism of their ethnicity, mostly. But this also intersected with class and gender as well a lot of the time. And again, these judgments were made not just by people who are the sort of gatekeepers, but also just in everyday mundane situations, dealing with customers, asking sometimes loaded questions about the origin of the work, the quality of the work, which the women I interviewed felt wouldn't be asked to a sort of male white maker. So that was another big theme. And then the final one is the sort of perception of craft as a potential career and linked to these issues within craft education. So a lot of the makers I spoke to were discouraged from pursuing craft as a career by their parents and families because of the perception that it's low paid and precarious work. And this is often the case with any creative occupation, really. And I argue this came up in the workshops I did as well. It leads to less people from ethnically diverse backgrounds actually making it through to college and university to study creative occupations because they're so discouraged. And for those who do make it to university they are then met with various challenges particularly a sort of white eurocentric craft curriculum mostly white university staff who can't relate to them and um, mostly white classrooms of students as well so a lot of issues there and those are the three main findings so far 
it gets everywhere. The tendrils of all of these things get everywhere in terms of race as well as, and class as well as gender. Certainly like the podcasting industry as it is, there's quite a lot of like voices of colour that people can hear, but still even within the like everyone can do it podcast industry, the people at the top are often white. And yeah, so you've sort of spoken about some of the barriers that are there before people even start to learn their crafts. And we're very aware of that within the repair industry, which is one of the reasons why we at Restart hold Rosie the Restarter skill shares that are run for and by women and uh, non-binary people. And they create a space to share and boost confidence and get technical together. And we also encourage Rosies, which is an inverted commas, because that's just a collective affectionate name for those women and non-binary people to group together in our public events. Do you think that that's a path that you would recommend for aiding inclusion? And does that resonate with the work that you're doing? Yeah, definitely. I think networks and support groups are so important because from speaking to my interviewees quite a few of them talked about how they often felt isolated like they felt they were the only person of color in craft the only person of color in the room and I think a catalyst for sort of addressing that was when George Floyd was murdered and there was Black Lives Matter trending online and in craft that was a big conversation there is a lot of raised awareness about craft groups and a lot of makers of colour voicing their experiences on Instagram, sharing their stories, sharing their experiences in the craft sector. And post-George Floyd, the interviews that I did, a lot of them said, suddenly I could see my experience reflected on Instagram. I was connecting with all these great makers online. I felt like I wasn't alone. So that's sort of an example of how social media can foster those networks across sort of geographical boundaries. So I think the Rosie the Restarter is a great example as well of bringing people together, getting people to support each other. And I think, as I mentioned in the report, I think networks are are incredibly important for that. In terms of the sort of barriers before people even join, the great thing about craft and repair is that anyone could seemingly do it, but then going on to make a career out of it is so difficult as with any creative career, as as we've mentioned. It's not seen as a viable career. It's really precarious and low paid. If you're from a working class background, you haven't got much in the way of resources. You're automatically priced out almost. The perception of craft as this sort of unstable, almost frivolous career choice. It was mentioned a few times in the interviews and a few of those women that I spoke to had parents who didn't support their craft career or dismissed it. So a few of them, they'd been working in craft for 20 odd years and they said, my parents are still asking me, when will I get a real job? Or they don't understand what I'm doing. They just think it's a hobby, even though it's my career. That came up a lot. But at the same time, there are many whose families were really supportive. So it's not always the case that families are unsupportive. I suppose it's, as you've talked about across other industries, the the sort of whiteness of spaces in studios, craft education. That feeling of, I don't belong here, that was literally mentioned in in interviews as well. That's a major barrier. And until more people can make it into those spaces, it's going to remain the case, I think. And that's why I think these networks are important for people to find that solidarity and that confidence to band together and, and create something and just 
amplify each other. In your phase one report, you note that all of those interviewed had experienced some form of racism and or microaggressions within craft spaces. Microaggressions were more common and more difficult to report, and we've touched on that already in our conversation. Do you think that these same problems with racism exist amongst professional and community repair groups, online or offline? So far, that hasn't been raised with Restart, but that obviously doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. My experience is that there's racism within all sectors of the UK because, you know, it's part of the wider culture of the UK. It's not happening because of the industries. It's happening because of the the culture that all of those industries are are in. Yes, I I agree. It's it's so ingrained in society, racism. Racism and particularly microaggressions, it will be everywhere and people will experience it. For example, at my university on the face of it you wouldn't think racism occurred but then the sort of wake of the the black lives matter you know various groups have been established to to address racism we've got anonymous forums to submit experiences and it's it's all sort of coming out you'd probably need someone to come in and research your uh, repair community to get a sense of of what's going on i do think microaggression will be going on and not not even in terms of race but probably gender as well I think that will be going on and I think again networks are very important to help people feel supported people need to feel like they can report these issues and not face any repercussions they need to feel like they will be listened to I think across the board that's a change that needs to be made not just in our sectors but anywhere if we're going to start changing the culture people need to feel like their concerns will be taken seriously Right. And and anybody that's from a marginalised group has probably had experiences of complaining and those complaints not being received well. I mean, mm. the feminist scholar Sarah Ahmed talks about, you know, if you make a complaint, you become the complaint. Yeah. Right. And so people are often afraid to complain because they don't want to be seen as the problem. Yeah. But that said, even though we've not had race-based microaggressions raised at Restart, we definitely have had discussion and issues have been raised by women within technical communities, including repair, and how they've been spoken to and how that makes them feel unwelcome and inferior. But it's often difficult to pinpoint or challenge that in the moment for them. What can be done to help and support those who are reporting these experiences and how can it be prevented? I think like racism, in certain areas of life, there's sexism as well, there's gender discrimination and certain craft occupations are seen as masculine. Yeah. You know, women should stick to knitting is the perception. In terms of helping people reporting these experiences, I think, again, like I said, it's about ensuring they're listened to and their concerns taken seriously. The current political climate hasn't helped in terms of just encouraging more discrimination in every way. Yeah. It's so prevalent in society. But I think individuals and organisations can do more collectively to take a stand against these behaviours and try to foster a positive and safe and encouraging environment. Yeah, it's really interesting as well, thinking about gender in terms of craft and repair, because they're kind of on different sides of the coin, aren't they? Like 
repair like that's a man's job and women are kind of yeah. discouraged from it because they're not they're not men whereas in in many crafts not all crafts but many crafts are gendered as women's work and in fact it's it's more likely that men will be looked down on if they kind of do knitting mm. but then it doesn't quite work as an equal thing because women's work is still looked down on so it might be that men are discouraged from doing it but women aren't celebrated for doing it necessarily either and i guess one thing to mention to listeners who who maybe not familiar with the concept of microaggressions is that that can be people kind of fetishizing or being positive in certain kinds of ways about who you are and what you're doing. So I imagine in the craft sector, there's a lot of like exoticizing certain crafts like, oh, that's interesting because it's from Africa sort of thing, rather than giving respect to labor that's being done by workers and human beings and, and all of that sort of stuff. And their expertise as well. Right. Their expertise is, is devalued. There's some great work on hand weavers in Indonesia and in India. Some great work by Radhika Gajala and Annapurna Mabidupudi. They've done some really good work highlighting the skill and expertise of these weavers. And yet within those contexts, there's these hierarchies where at the top you've got these men who are calling the shots who are getting the money and yet it's the skill of the women labourers which is going unnoticed and and underappreciated so those gendered hierarchies are are evident everywhere. And when we're talking about gender, it's not just the issues around cis people's experience of gender. There's also different genders that have different experiences of the way that the world forces us into boxes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like once you start to sort of peel back all of these different layers, it becomes almost impossible, doesn't it? Because so, there's so much yeah. to say. <laughs> In the recommendations following research from the Craft Expertise Project, you suggest establishing industry codes of conduct. We have community rules and guidelines, but not formal codes of conduct. How can organisations do more, for example, having zero tolerance for certain behaviours? And would this help with the issues that we've discussed previously? I think any discriminatory behaviour, outwardly discriminatory behaviour is against the law. We have the Equality Act in this country. But as you've mentioned, and as I've shown in the Craft Expertise report, it still happens. And when it does happen, people don't always know what to do. So I think having zero tolerance for racist, misogynistic behaviour is very important. But it's up to organisations to be fully committed to doing it. And not only that, but putting in the effort to learn more about racism and how to call it out. Be active allies and take action to make their organisations more diverse. It's a cultural change which is needed everywhere. Codes of conduct can be a practical thing for organisations to follow and they can be a good way to start on that path towards that cultural change, I think. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, and it's important for these things to happen kind of a mixture of top down and and bottom up, right? Because we need to listen to the experiences of the people at the bottom of these hierarchies. But also, as has been mentioned, it's hard to complain. It's hard to make a fuss. So it needs people at the top to really take responsibility for making a culture that, that invites people to sort of engage. And I, I guess codes of conduct really help to start that process off. 
Part of the recommendations in your report were about craft in education. We also find this in repair where skills are being lost because it's left out of traditional education. I always think this, like I wasn't taught how to change a fuse in school. That would be really, (laughs) really useful. Why is this so important? This goes back to the idea of people believing craft and repair is, is for them. And if you're exposed to it from quite a young age, if it's encouraged across the board, then you can start developing those skills early on. If craft is valued in schools and in education, then it will be valued more in wider society, as, as you mentioned earlier. And this is the case with all creative industries, I think. It is a worry how much these subjects are, are being cut in schools and now at university level as well they are at risk so these subjects these creative and craft subjects and and repair is so important for mental health well-being and self-expression which I think a lot of people would have discovered during the pandemic and during lockdown everyone enjoys the sort of fruits of creative workers whether it's watching a film on Netflix a TV drama on Channel 4 or listening to music so It's so important for just our cultural life and our well-being, and that's as a result of creative labour. People want to see themselves and their experiences represented, and that's why diversity is so important in, in these sectors as well. And I think... In craft, having more role models from diverse backgrounds is is so crucial to inspire that next generation so that they know that pursuing craft is possible for them just knowing it's it's possible is is really important right i mean it's interesting isn't it because i mean a good example is like sewing sewing is so useful for example teenage boys who might want to look cool like with their clothing but not have very much money if they had sewing skills and it wasn't like looked on as unmasculine for them to sit and sew up their clothes they could look even cooler exactly it's a disadvantage to all of us for any area to be said like no that's not for you. Can you share with us a few of the most resonant stories that you've been told by makers in your research or on the Maker Stories podcast? There are a lot of negative experiences. Yeah, the incidents of racism, people literally being told, you don't belong here, what are you doing here? You're here because of the colour of your skin. Uh, Literally things that people have been told. People being told they shouldn't do craft, people's craft being questioned by others, other fellow studio holders, for example. You know, really awful things. But the most inspiring thing is that Despite all of the challenges all of these interviewees have faced, and they're many and varied, it's never put them off craft. Craft has never left them. They've continued to make because it's who they are. They feel it's a part of them. It might be they've learned these skills from their parents or grandparents. It might be that they've been inspired by someone they've seen or they've just picked something up and started making and it's just captured them and it's become who they are and a part of their life. And in spite of everything that's happened, they've continued to make. It's helped them with their well-being. It's helped, in some cases, it's helped them deal with trauma and help them express themselves. And they've persisted to do this in a system which was not built for them, this sort of craft industry that is structurally against them. And yet they've made their own way 
through it. They've made their own table, to quote one of the makers. She said, I never get invited to the top table, so I'm just going to make my own table. That really stuck with me. And I think the one thing the craft sector can do now is to change its structure and its system so that people don't have to fight to feel like they belong, fight to get their expertise recognised, fight to make a living when it's so easy for dominant groups. So they just don't have to fight to make their own table. They might actually get invited to a table. So I think that's the most inspiring thing for me, how they all refuse to let any of their experiences get them down and they've made their way as makers. This conversation with Dr Patel and the research and publications that she has done gives us a lot to consider as a repair community and as members of society as a whole. As she noted, just because we may not be aware of discrimination happening around us or even be aware of it being perpetrated by us, that doesn't mean that it isn't there. Because of that, we must be proactive in our allyship and support. Here's a statement from the Restart Project on this topic. We aim to be actively inclusive and foster welcoming, radically open repair spaces where belonging isn't conditional on race, gender, sexuality, appearance, background or being neurotypical or free from health conditions or impairments. In our community guidelines, we ask everyone who joins these spaces to embrace this approach. But we know there is always more work to be done to make sure that nobody is made to feel uncomfortable or like an outsider. During our pause in activities, we've reviewed how people can talk to us about any microaggressions or uncomfortable situations they experience at our events as well as ways to prevent such situations from happening in the first place. It's a priority for us in these coming months. And separately from the Restart Project, I'd like to echo a lot of what was just said in that statement and to make it very clear that I take these issues seriously as a podcaster, both in making the Restart Project and for the work that I do for myself and for other clients, which is one of the reasons why I'm a signatory of the Equality in Audio Pact, which you can find more about at www.equalityinaudiopact.co.uk. And do reach out to me or to the Restart Project if there are things that we could be doing better within the podcast. And we would also love to hear your thoughts and experiences surrounding the topics in this episode. Do you feel that the repair community is a welcoming place for all? And what ways can we improve the work that we do to make it more so? Do drop us a line on community at therestartproject.org. Contact us through social media or talk to us in person at a restart party or event. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. 
As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the Restart Project. Where we've also set up a fundraiser. So if you've enjoyed this episode, do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.